Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening to us this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause this recording right now and give us a five-star review, even better, um, a five-star rating rather, even better, give us a review. Follow us on Twitter at, at Clergy Lay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? Kirk, I'm great. This, it's, I, I, you know, I might say I'm great. The sun is shining. Life is good. But in fact, uh, I'm great because it is raining. <laughs> You'll have we, to explain we, that. We had uh, no measurable rain for two months during the summer last year. And, and the fall was pretty dry too. And uh, so summer started out dry and hot. And so we are getting a little bit of a break and we're getting a little bit of rain. And uh, that makes things good. Gotta have rain. We, uh, so you in in Pittsburgh, who have lots of clouds and lots of rain, yeah. um, and lots of greenery because of that. We have greenery, but uh, it it may not stick around for that long if uh, we continue to be so dry. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we, we go ahead. We suffer from a similar pro- uh, from from the opposite problem, which is we we're having trouble finishing our uh, our our little league playoff tournament because stuff keeps getting canceled yesterday. Everything got washed out the day before Simon's game was called. And we're going to pick that game up where we left off on Wednesday tonight at five 30 uh, stuff's getting pushed into next week, which becomes a problem for us as we go on vacation. So we have the opposite problem. We need, you and I both need a Goldilocks zone. You know, I've had trouble describing to Pennsylvanians how uh, I grew up with every small town across the Midwest had, um, had had a um, Ranger Rick, <laughs> um, little uh, not Ranger Rick, Smokey the, the Bear, a Smokey the mm-hmm. Bear sign as you entered the town. They would tell you what the fire danger was that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've never had fire danger here, never. <laughs> yeah, you, you never hear of, of wildfires in Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. Uh, well, at least Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, I I heard someone say that uh, that during the Cold War that there are some installations in Eastern Ohio uh, put there for the express purpose of, of the extreme cloud cover that Soviet, you know, spy planes <laughs> could not detect or satellites or whatever could not detect things on the ground there. Uh, I remember meeting a coworker of yours, Kirk, who moved from, this is years ago. So you may not even remember this coworker, but he moved from New Mexico to Pittsburgh. And he asked when he bought his house, does it have a sprinkler? 
in, you know, does the lawn have a underground sprinkler <laughs> system, which everyone here has. Right. And they're like, they're like, why? Like, why, what, what do you mean? <laughs> like, okay. you know, why would you have to water your lawn? Kirk, you, you have, you have had many home improvement projects that has produced a great amount of trash, a bunch of garbage. Uh, it's funny how we describe uh, things that are bit disastrous, uh, just like circumstances. We describe them as dumpster fires, but you in fact have a dumpster in your driveway. Do you have a, is there a prospect of a dumpster fire? It's a dumpster fire. Yeah, it's a fire set. No, we, uh, no, no dumpster fires, literally, no dumpster though fires. metaphorically, uh, we run into several through the course of our week. Yeah, we have a dumpster. <laughs> we have There's a dumpster. no, there is no avoiding the dumpster fires. That's right. That's right. Uh, um, Daphne was the only one who happened to be home with me when the dumpster was delivered this week. And she was so excited. Um, a five-year-old girl who likes uh, unicorns and pink and pretty things and getting her nails done. Who would have thought that the highlighter week was uh, helping daddy clean out the garage and putting stuff in a dumpster, but, but she thought it was great. Yeah, we have um, we have a we have a goal, which is um, reclaiming a garage stall that has we've been the frog boiling in the pot proverbially. Uh, we're by our count four home improvement projects in where we just had weird stuff that um, how do you get rid of these things, right? How do you get rid of a sink? Where do you go? Where do you take a sink? How do you get rid of a vanity? How do you get rid of a toilet? Right. How would Van what vanity you, is tough because that's big. Yeah. Yeah. Who will who will take shelves that have been damaged by gray water? Uh, you mm. know, what, what do you do with oddly cut drywall or backer board or whatever oh, that um, I think that you put it in your garage. You put it in your garage. <laughs> that's what you do with it. But at some point you run out of room. Um, what about what about a, a you know, Bryden's crib? Mm. That you know is never it got used, but it's never gonna be used again. Like there's just um, for every item I've mentioned, there are like eight similar items that, oddly, oddly enough, Christopher, I upgraded my um, my charcoal grill, and mm. I just just to see, you know, it's like when you put garbage bait on a on a fishing line, see who bites. I set it out there, and someone took it. It's totally rusted out. Um, this was before we got the dumpster. So anyhow, this is this is our opportunity to just throw throw anything in there, man. And uh, oh, shall I say this? Shall I say this? Okay, so I was getting a bunch of different quotes. Uh, on dumpsters, I got like the large companies, waste management, and uh, some other large companies, and they came in at you know X dollars for a dumpster. And then, uh, then one of our friends uh, caught went her overheard Kim talking about it at at a baseball game, and said, "Oh, we use so and so, and it's just this local kind of Beaver hmm. Falls guy, <laughs> and um, and oh yeah, yeah." Oh, by the way, so waste management, there, there's this long list of stuff you can't put in a dumpster. Mm. And evidently this guy, as long as it's not, a, as long as it's not on the top, as long as it's sufficiently buried, like whatever, whatever's in there. He's not, he's not checking. Kirk? He's like dumping it. So it's great. What are you, what are you going to bury? Uh, like, what are the things that I thought we weren't going to talk about the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you agreed not to bring that up. Well, okay, so um, like, I, I don't know, this isn't very scandalous, but like a dehumidifier, which I gather you're not supposed to. Mm. That was another thing. Like, what do you do with an old dehumidifier? We had a That's bunch of stuff like that. And other people I've heard will just dump cans of paint. 
Oh no, on, no, on no, there no. and then let it dry. Um, we're we're actually doing the right thing and like putting in putting stuff in the cans sure. of paint and stirring it sure. and, and drying them that way. Sure. But like <laughs> so So we're not being that scandalous. Of we're interest, pretty much throwing everything in there. Of interest, perhaps only to me. Uh Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh it's the Wild West here, uh in many ways. But you know, I, mean, I do like some... riding down Main Street with my spurs and chaps at Sioux Falls. <laughs> which you which you could probably do. And but uh it's interesting in some ways, some things are, are super privatized. Uh, so I'm sure in, in your city that there is the, the municipal garbage service and that's it. Where here, uh, garbage pickup is privatized. So there are any number of companies. There are at least six companies I can think of that you can pay to come pick up your trash in at your house. But there is a city landfill and we get a coupon every year for like a free car load. <laughs> Nice. One one free load of the dump. So that's when you take all the stuff, except for the the few things that are on the list of hazardous things. And then there's a city site where like batteries and mostly (laughs) electronics, but also I think toxic things like perhaps paint and things like that. And uh, and which is useful because that's the stuff that builds up in your garage because you can never put it out on the street corner. Right, right. And so, so the city handles, handles like the big dump. And I'm sure what happens is the, the smaller companies that'll pick up your trash, just bring them to the big dump. But uh, yeah, it's interesting how that's handled here in contrast with other places. Hey, guess what? I, guess what I did this morning? What did you do? I am a huge chicken regarding all things medical, all mm. things uh, needles and blood and all that stuff. You did uh, surgery. My, Let me guess. You did surgery on your own ingrown toenail. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm oddly indifferent to dealing with other people's blood and pain. So, um, no, I did not do, I, I, I did not do anything on my toenail. Cause I know, I know someone who did do that to his own toenail. <laughs> but go on. Yeah. Uh, so I had a physical last month in May and because I avoid doctors, <laughs> it had been like six years since I've had, had any blood work done. I think, I think that's about right. Probably would have been 2015. So and so the he first ordered, blood draw you've ordered had? a script for blood work. And I was like, okay, let's, let's just do this. Let's rip the bandaid off and get it done. So last night I, we ate dinner at six and I didn't have anything else after that. And then I went this morning and uh, guess what? I, I'm a big boy. If you look right here, the show and tell, I already took the thing off the bandaid off. Did they, did they give you like a nice Mickey Mouse bandaid or something? No, to make you feel better. No, no they gave me the nondescript, nice. uh, like white Ooh. cotton thing, and Ooh. like taped that on. Not even anything to no, no Mickey Mouse. Yeah, but I'm 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 basically a medical hero this morning. So I've got not a like, COVID hero, slight, but a medical some, hero. Yeah, I got some slight pain in my right arm, but but I I still feel like I'm I'm functioning at about eighty percent. There's there's a lot of pain and trauma this morning, but but I but I did have my breakfast and, and drinking coffee. Fight so I think we're it. good. Yeah. Yeah yeah um i mean the prick the 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 nurse always says um she always says the thing that i hated which is like just a little prick or just a just a little pinch and then i'm like ah, it's not a little pinch i can feel the needle reaching into my bone um but this morning i was like yeah um that is she's right it's just a little prick this is i i, I feel like i'm growing in bravery and i'm able to swallow down my fear it's just a little prick little prick small um, not quite as small as a, as a mustard seed, um, but but still pretty small. Speaking, Christopher, of mustard seeds, 
today's gospel reading comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest seed of all the seeds on earth. And yet, when it's sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, a couple brief comments before we jump to the gospel, Kirk. I could see what you're doing with the transition, and it took every fiber of willpower to not stomp all over it and interrupt <laughs> you just to just to ruin the momentum. So I'm proud of myself. I, I, I'm patting myself on the back. I'm basically pulling a muscle, patting myself on the back for that. I, I do see that. It was, it's a vigorous self-pat. Yeah. So this has also been the place where we have um, – it's an awkward place to issue corrections. But I do want to say last week, as I listened to the episode, I heard myself say that, that Joseph, the father of Jesus, is not present past the birth story. And as I, as I listened to myself saying that, I realized this isn't exactly true. What I meant to say is that he isn't present in the adult life. So baptism on. That in Luke chapter 2, yeah. um, we, see, uh, we see the presence of Joseph. Um, and Jesus and by the time like 12 there, right? Yeah. By the time we see Jesus in Mark chapter three, there's no mention of Joseph. So it's possible that he is dead at this point. Certainly at the cross where um, Jesus sort of commends uh, Mary to, oh gosh, my memory is terrible. To John, to John. You know, behold behold your mother, mother behold your son. So um, we do have a story in Luke two about the boy Jesus in the temple, uh, 12 year old boy. And we're told that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And it's, it's, a, it's a really good passage, and it's worth reading in its entirety. So, Kirk, I'm going to read these 10 verses, okay. 11 verses real quick. So we, so we get it, because this is, we don't get a lot of Jesus in his youth in the Gospels, especially in Mark, right? So this is uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Parenthetically, might we add uh, that the Catholics have a dogma of, of, the, of basically that Mary was sinless. Um, does like forgetting your kid <laughs> in Jerusalem and leaving home, does that not count as a sin? Not if it was Joseph's fault. <laughs> I thought, you know, you've had that, you know, the, Meg always... <laughs> Uh, gets furious with me because I think it's hilarious when she asks like where such such and such kid is. I'm like, I thought you had him. I thought you had her. And she's just like slaps me in the arms. Like, that's not funny. This this Uh, is a a mostly humorous uh, evident, perhaps tentative evidence that Mary and Joseph had other kids. Like we all know 
parents that have only children. <laughs> I thought you like, had him. They always know where the they one child the is. One child is, yeah. But once you have subsequent children, you've got like a vague sense that it'll all be fine. <laughs> He's with somebody, right? I, mean, right? I remember these trips we would take with with our cousins, Kirk, and you know we were scattered throughout multiple vehicles, and yes. only a few times was a kid left behind at a like gas legitimately station. at a rest stop, right? Rest stop, yeah. Wasn't yeah. Alicia left at a rest stop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, back to the text. <laughs> Uh, his his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went to Day's Journey, but then began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in our heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And as I looked up this passage, Kirk, to kind of remember where it was that, that Joseph was mentioned, uh, I was just struck by a, a few things. Um, uh, one was just the humanity of Jesus who, you know, had learned and grew and he mm -hmm. sat asking questions that he was a human who, who was not born um, with this amazing knowledge, but had to grow in knowledge, right? That he increased yeah. in wisdom and stature that we see him, um, growing physically um but growing intellectually um preparing for his ministry that 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 he wasn't just born ready for this because he was just uh this divine being dropped on earth but he was born as a humble man um reliant on on learning and growing and reliant on the holy spirit much as we are and uh we also see a repeat of this uh thing of mary but she treasured up all these things in her heart and so i like that just just as um she heard of of you know, the prophecy of Jesus and treasure those things. We see that again. So do you have any thoughts on that before we move on to today's gospel reading, Kirk? Uh, no. Nope. Okay. I think yeah. that's great. Yeah. So today's gospel reading is actually quite simple. Like there, there's some gospels readings uh, that we scratch our head and we have to kind of hem and haw to say, well, Jesus could be saying this. He could be saying that there's this interpretation and that interpretation. And this is one of those fairly simple ones actually uh and we see that uh it says that he's spoken many parables and and so uh, parable sometimes it, it makes sense to break down the etymology of a word to say oh well it literally means this and certainly with their parable it, it does it means to cast alongside um and so uh to cast alongside uh, you know, how do I teach this concept? Well, I, I give like a parallel sort of concept. Like the kingdom of heaven is like this, or I'm sorry, the kingdom of God, it's like this. And so he, he teaches like the kingdom of God is like this, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. And so Jesus had just taught the parable of, of the sower um different ki kinds of soil um some 
so as as the seed is cast, as as the the word is proclaimed, um, it works. <laughs> the word works, and and this is something as we were doing a service project at the church uh, last weekend, um, doing something for a childcare, a Christian mission childcare in town. I love this childcare; it's great. There there are cool works of mercy that we see on the ground here in Sioux Falls, and this childcare is a a Christian a mission childcare designed for the working poor. Mm. And uh, Kirk, you and I both know how expensive childcare is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have uh, thankfully had to use less uh, childcare, but childcare is unbelievably expensive. And for, for the working poor, people who are these kind of low wage earners, it is essentially uh, cost prohibitive. Like you just can't do it. Um, and so here's a childcare that says, we want to serve the working poor. They come in, they bring their pay stubs, they show what their income is. And we work with them to say, here's how much you will pay because they want them to have some skin in the game. They don't want it to be free, but they're like, uh, a hundred dollars a month. Can you afford a hundred dollars? Whatever the case may be, they've got somebody who figures that out, what their contribution is, um, for the working poor. And then they, they serve their children and the parents that come may be Christians. They may not be. But uh, it's explicitly a Christian childcare, and it's 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 like this: it's uh, we're going to teach your child scripture, we're going to teach your child about Jesus. That's part of the program, whether they like it or not. Um, and that's they're they're scattering the seed. And as as we working on this, we're we're doing this work as they're putting in a a new playground there. We talked about um, just the importance of encountering the word that maybe they don't get uh, that in reinforced at home but but uh, it's the, that's the whole mission of the Gideons the, these people who want to put a Bible in every um, every single hotel room every place they can they want a Bible because we believe that the word of God is powerful that God's um, revealed word in the scriptures is 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 efficacious in itself and that um, people may not open that drawer in the, in the hotel room for many years, but then someone in a low spot opens it up and reads and is in, in, encounters Jesus. And uh, that's what we believe uh, as Christians, that as we scatter this seed, as we do this work of making disciples, uh, and making disciples is a process, it's, it's, it's both um, getting people to convert to, to Christianity, but also post-conversion, uh, there's discipleship that happens, there's growth. But as, as far as we um, proclaim the gospel, we, as we seek in our lives to encounter people far from God, or people who are just separated from the church and share the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has done for them what they could never do for themselves. Uh, this happens invisibly. <laughs> just as a farmer um, who, has, who has planted the seed, he goes to bed and he sleeps. And it grows. He knows not how. Um, it's, it's just our job to do that proclaiming. It's our job to do that work of evangelism. It's our job to proclaim the word of God. And to, you know, if, if you feel called, to donate to the Gideons and to make sure that the word ends up in, in, in hotel rooms and in, in various public places. Because uh, what this stuff happens invisibly. Uh, all this transformation, it happens... Um, uh, in, in a very unseen way. And uh, Martin Luther explained uh, the success of the Reformation this way. 
in the invisible success. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, a parallel, a parable almost. I simply taught, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. I did nothing. The word did everything. And of course he did something. Like he proclaimed the word. He did his part, right? But the, the point is that hidden transformations are occurring. And Kirk, I know that you in the past have talked about your delight in doing yard work. Mm-hmm. Why do you like doing yard work? Uh, because I can see visible, tangible, immediate results. The before and after pictures are obvious. <laughs> it's evidence of work done. Whereas in the classroom, as a teacher, as you are not only teaching, but you're shaping character and, and morals and all sorts of things, as you parent, all those things, right. hidden transformations are occurring. And it right. may take years to see these things yep. come to fruition. And, and um, I, I guess the takeaway is be not discouraged when we fail to see the fruit of our work, um, the fruit of our labor, um, that uh, be like Luther and simply teach, preach, write God's word. Um, live a life worthy of, of imitation. Um, and when the grain is ripe, um, the harvest will come. And uh, verse 28 is great. I love it uh, because we've, we've talked about, Kirk, certainly one of my favorite hymns, and I think one of yours, uh, Come You Thankful People Come, which is an eschatological. Um, yeah, that eight. hymn would definitely be on our bingo card, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's and and, and the, the person who wrote the lyrics to that hymn, uh, I'm sure you know the name of that person, um, pulled that from this verse. Um, First the blade and then the ear, then the full grain shall appear. Um, something, Lord, that we, something, something fruitful be. <laughs> okay, that was a dumpster fire of a, of a recall <laughs> on my part. So, uh, Kirk, do you remember that line that I, that I cannot... First the blade and then the ear, then the whole corn shall appear. Uh, grant, oh Lord, that grant, grant, O oh harvest, Lord, that we whole and pure, uh, pure and wholesome grain may be. Is that it? Some, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's about 70% close. <laughs> sure. And, okay. And then the second parable is really, really similar. It just kind of reinforces. Um, and it's like this kingdom of God, which has come in, um, has been inaugurated by a guy, by Jesus, a guy who is going to be slain on a sinner's cross. Um, you know, invisible, uh, you know, only, only detectable by people by, by me, you know, less than 1% of the, of the known population of, of the world, right? Um, this is a small entry of, of this great kingdom of God. And he's saying, how do we compare it? Like, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed. Now, there are smaller seeds, but this would have been like the smallest seed that they could picture in that day. Um, so like a, a botanist would say, well, there are smaller seeds. But this time, like the, para, the, the kingdom has appeared in this very small way. And yet, when it comes to fruition, it's this enormous tree, so great that it becomes 
uh, a home to birds. And so uh, commentators will, will point to imagery of trees in the Old Testament in Ezekiel and there's another uh, in Daniel that talk about these great trees that. Well, that um, tree in Ezekiel is our Old Testament lesson, but it's odd that that Ezekiel tree is Egypt, not. Yeah, not the so of God. our Old Testament is Ezekiel 33, I think, uh, and Ezekiel 17 is 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 kind of the, the the one that I'm thinking of. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, and but but the point is is that um, the kingdom may seem small now. Um, and certainly the hearers of the gospels and you know we have great cathedrals today and and in some ways the kingdom could seem more significant than a tiny seed but in other ways uh, much much as we the work that we see we may not see it come to fruition as that seed germinates and grows underground and then eventually becomes this big thing um it, it's the same idea that the god works his work <laughs> He, he uses us. We do our part, um, but, but God does all this invisible work, undetectable, hidden transformations. These things are occurring, and um, when the, consum the consummation of the kingdom comes, when Christ returns um, with the trumpet sound, um, it will in fact be this wonderful thing. And in fact, a home, a great tree is many things. It is, it is shade, it is comfort, it is, it is a, a home for, for some creatures. Um, this kingdom will someday, um, we will see it in all its glory. Amen. And that is um, my dramatic um, sip of bubbly. Um, All right. Was a, sign, was a sign that I was passing the baton. To yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Uh, you had asked um, you had asked me previously uh, if um, if I had anything to add to your, um, your 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 brief foray into Luke two, and I said no because I was mentally <laughs> thinking about Mark, and I did. Um, mm. So I'm just I'm just gonna do uh, a super fast drive by. Yeah, there's yeah. this uh, there's this hymn written uh, by I think Sir Christopher Durnley, uh, a 19th century poet, called the the growing limbs of Christ or the growing limbs of God the Son. Um, that that uh, the, the the text is basically Luke two, um, uh, this uh, him be him him being lost and then being at the temple. And it, it stresses, as you noted, uh, the humanity of Jesus, that he's like this, you know, this middle schooler, <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Um, the growing limbs of God, the son, the father's soul begotten one, prepare him for his work on earth, who for mankind took human birth. In wisdom and in grace, he grows. Each step of human life, he knows. In all save sin, like us was made to be a fallen people's aid. And then here's where, where it becomes explicit that that Luke 2 is the text. His father's house he enters in, where rabbis teach their cure for sin. Well, in his heart, he hears the call, which through his cross, one life for all. Yeah, but I love that. The growing limbs of God the Son, right? right? Like, um, uh, re, um, divinity meets full humanity and embraces mm. it and grows into it and does things like get, gets lost. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, and, and which is such a twelve-year-old you know, boy thing. That wonderful Christmas hymn, and part of it that's wonderful is that it emphasizes the incarnation, um, the nature of it, not like uh, in in um, snow on snow on snow on snow. Right. You know, and it would you know it it didn't talk about the the animals. You know, it was um, come thou redeemer of the earth. No, no, I, I'm just. Uh, once in a royal David city. Oh yeah, um, yes. There, yep. There's there's that line day by day he learned and grew. 
Yes. You know, emphasizing just the, like what the incarnation is, is that, that like Christ left his throne in heaven to be born as, as, as a humble yeah. baby. Yeah. And day by day, he had to learn and grow. And not so, had to, he, he, did, he did, yeah. So yeah. I, I'm sorry. I wish I had had the presence of mind to, uh, to throw that in there when you, when you had asked me. All right, all right. I so like, back- I, Kirk, I kind of like our, our crooked path. I mean, it, it keeps our listeners on their toes. <laughs> sure. We'll say that. uh back back to mark man back to mark um this is christopher this is so to the point so terse um mark is great that way right like these we have two pericopes and uh it's like just a total of eight verses um and and for me uh the parable of the seed growing i've i've kind of grown into um, an appreciation of this. I, I marvel at this. Um, what an apt metaphor, right? So um, the, the most sophisticated farmers today still have to plant a seed. And then something unseen and not fully known happens, right? How does it know um, for the shoot to go up, right? How does it know that? But it does, right? Um, at some point, uh, the, the the farmer does his job and walks away and trusts that some some unseen marvelous life giving mystery will occur apart from any of his effort, right? That's still crazy with as with as efficient and scientific as farming is now. Um, and so what a, what a metaphor for um, the work of the church, right? The work of the kingdom of God. Our job is to baptize and spread the word right, as the church. So the manner uh, of unseen conversion is completely up to God, right? Uh, and and, and I, I love to pound the drum of, of infant baptism, but like, how does, how, do, how does baptism install faith? We don't know, <laughs> but we baptize and make believers. Um, just like, how does, the, how does the farmer planting a seed produce corn? He doesn't know, but it does, right? And so, um, there's a the, there's this famous seminary Fuller Seminary that that spouted uh, that spouted that's not even a word <laughs> that they gave birth to something called the Church Growth Movement, um, which said that there's basically mm. a, a method mm. that you yeah. can use, um, and it strikes me in some ways that it's just utterly contrary to this pericope actually, um, that there are actual plans and programs and levers you can pull that 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 will trigger. Yeah, just just Perhaps, plug in the form, just yeah. plug in the formula in one yeah. end, and on the out, on the other end comes yeah. comes disciples. Yeah, and what 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 this passage and and Martin Luther's uh, um, humorous and and wonderful paraphrase of this passage is is that um, word and sacrament is just simply scattering the seed in the faithful way that that God asks. Right, preach the gospel, um, administer the sacraments, and um, the harvest will grow. And it's not up to you to understand why, but to scatter the seed. And so that is actually really good news um, because I, I have to think that a lot of clergy, particularly now, you know, as churches are opening back up and they look at attendance and it's, you know, whatever, 40%, 60% of whatever it was. And they look at giving and they're like, what do I do? Um, which is a totally understandable question, but probably the wrong question, right? Scatter the seed, um, do it faithfully. Um, love the word, preach the word, um, baptize your babies, um, give, uh, give Holy Communion, 
um, so that our Lord can be in your believers' hearts and souls. Um, and 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 trust <laughs> and trust that, that that this will happen, right? So that, I, I think that can actually be good news for us as we kind of look around our re, our newly our reopened churches and wonder, you know, how are we going to rebuild from here? We're back to, you know, I, I I heard one pastor say he's back to where he was at 2015 when he arrived at his parish, uh, and you know, if you're if you're in a, in a church right now, and you're wondering, woof, as you look around on Sunday morning, mm. it's okay. Scatter the seed, man. Scatter the seed and trust. Yeah, there will be times of, 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 of fruitful harvest, and there will be, be lean times. Yeah. Uh, what other thing was I going to say? Yeah, plans and programs versus word and sacrament. I said that. Oh, oh, another thing. So, Christopher... Uh, there was a, a time in a previous podcast, I think last year, where I, in a, in a shambling, uh, hesitant, stumbling fashion, tried to, say, tried to say what the kingdom of God is, because I've, I've heard a lot of hemming and hawing about that. I've, I've read chapters about that, blog posts about that, seen Twitter battles about that. And um, I think oftentimes the laity are none the wiser are no clearer on the matter after many words have been spoken or written on the kingdom of God. And I tried to humbly say that the kingdom of God is the church. Um, and, and, and you really helped me tease that out uh, and asked me hard questions like, what about, how, how do you explain this for people who maybe been, are sad or mad at the church? Mm. Um, but I, I have been reading I think I shared this with you, uh, Martin Thornton's Christian Proficiency. Um, and this is sort of setting up, a, setting up a prayer life kind of based around three things, Holy Communion, the daily office, morning and evening prayer, uh, and then private devotion, right? And those kind of three pillars are the stool of, of uh, a Christian's prayer life and, uh, and walk with God. And, and at one point he is, in one of these early chapters, he's walking through the Lord's Prayer. Um, I mean, all of this is great, but he says to give plain and direct orders, then the living experience of the church to work out their details and gradually gain insight into their profound wisdom is precisely our Lord's method. Uh, the church's rule as tabulated is the fruit of such experience. Thus, and he goes through each line of the Lord's prayer, our father, which art in heaven. And then, then the line, thy kingdom come, right? So here's the overlap with today's lesson. The kingdom of God is like the kingdom of God. Here's what Martin Thornton says. The kingdom of God is within you. By baptismal incorporation into the mystical body, we are in it, right? So we are incorporated into the body of Christ by our baptism, right? The St. Paul uses that metaphor all the time, right? That, uh, that the church is the body of Christ, right? Uh, the kingdom of God is the church. Its capital is the heavenly city, but it was established on earth in the village of Bethlehem. The kingdom of God came down with the incarnation, and it comes down in every Eucharist. Mm. Uh, and so when we read these parables of the kingdom of God, um, I'm perhaps reacting against uh, great, great fountains of confusing words, people who could not speak simply as to the kingdom of God. Um, uh, if you want the kingdom of God, <laughs> go and be with his people. <laughs> mm. Go and be with his church. Hear the word. Um, receive his body and blood um, shed and given for you. 
um, and there you will find uh, the forgiveness and and the and the new life uh, in His kingdom. And that was He put that more simply than I did in my shambling uh, explanation last time. So how's that? That's good. I mean, it's yeah, it's. Uh, I think last time I like the way I. You may have been dissatisfied with the way you discussed it, but I kind of liked it, you know, as, as we asked the questions, like, does the kingdom of God exist outside the church? Is it found only in the church? Um, uh, and I, I, I appreciated the way you answered that last time, and, and this kind of adds substance to that. I like it. Yeah. The kingdom of God is here. It is not fully consummated. It, it is here. It is present. And um, I mean, we see glimpses of it um, last week in the gospel reading, um, you know, as, as it closed, we, we saw Jesus say who his mother and his brothers and his sisters are. Right. And that's, that's, that's the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that, perhaps... ties, that, that, that ties in well with the um, uh, light momentary affliction that, that Paul is talking about that, like we are encouraged um by, by um, the afflictions of this life, that they are light momentary afflictions as, as we are uh, given comfort by God and through um, his kingdom. And, and uh, I, I, I'm a patron saint of lost causes. <laughs> I think all the things I'm passionate about are, have basically been cast aside by our culture. And I think it's time for the church to have some defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's everyone loves to beat up on the institutional church. Um, but like the premise behind that is that uh, maybe it was an, a historical accident or Christ didn't actually mean to establish right. it. And uh, yeah, the, um, it, it, is, it is wounded and bleeding right now in America and it, it deserves uh, a, a winsome defense. And so I would say if, if you haven't been going to church since coronavirus, um, come and revisit the kingdom of God and receive the fullness of life therein. So there's my plea to everyone to go back to church good for your souls you look deep in thought do you have any more to say on the matter i don't let's move on to our theology i'm sorry our culture segment For our culture segment today, yeah. which will in, inevitably, Christopher, uh, deal with, uh, with, with deep and, not deep, with, with, with complex theological concepts. So it could be culture and theology. You and I both watched a great historical movie, Christopher. We watched Beckett. Um, and I am so glad that we uh, we were talking about watching a different movie. And for some reason, I was dragging my feet on watching that movie. And we can still still watch that another time and talk about it. Now it's a man for all seasons about Sir Thomas More, a man about who I'm sort of ambivalent. Anyhow, <laughs> Beckett is a 1964 historical drama about a tumultuous relationship between King Henry II of England and his friend turned Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett. 
it uh, it made sense, Christopher, as I read about it. Um, it is a film adaptation mm. of a play that was written five years before, a 1959 play called Beckett or the Honor of God. And the film is so uh, um, faithful to the play that, in fact, that very phrase, honor of God, is a, is a great theme. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll have to kind of deal with that as we talk about it. Uh, Christopher, the film, the cast could not be hmm. more majestic. It stars Richard Burton uh, uh, as, as a um, transfixing Thomas a. Beckett. Um, his, his, the, the, the torments of his soul um, written across every wrinkle on his face. And Peter O'Toole playing a tempestuous uh, Henry II. And, um, and so uh, let's, uh, let, let me briefly summarize what it, what it is. And uh, I'll do a brief summary and review. And then we can dive into its themes, Christopher, and you can kind of bounce off that. Uh, the movie opens with Henry, King Henry II, solemnly processing into the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral. A very solemn procession. Um, there, I think there are, there, there are black garbed or gray garbed monks um, on either side as he rides his horse up to the, the, um, the, the steps entering Canterbury Cathedral, uh, the, west, the western entrance. Um, and he, he goes into the crypt he strips down into penitential garb. I think he may take a take his shirt off or put on a hair shirt. I forget. And he speaks then to the tomb of Thomas. And then all the movie after that, Christopher is is a flashback, explaining how Henry got to that moment and how Thomas gets into that tomb. <laughs> so Thomas Beckett is a Saxon. That is, he is a, a member of the conquered peoples of England. And Henry II is a Norman. Um, he's the great-grandson of William the Conqueror, who in 1066, as Duke of Normandy, crossed the English Channel with his knights and ships, and quite improbably um, defeated the King of England at the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> and so suddenly, um, the English ruling class, the Anglo-Saxon ruling class, is supplanted by a Norman, a French ruling class. Hey, and Kirk, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you just very briefly. Um, yeah. We are, are not going to... Uh, spend a great deal of time like picking apart the historical inaccuracies in the film. Right. Um, we're going to treat it just as, um, as it is. Uh, but one of the historical inaccuracies is, is uh, Thomas Beckett was not in fact a Saxon, but, right. but right. Uh, it, yes. It, you know, you he, he is a Norman. Um, but, but the way, the reason the playwright uh, cat, uh, made him a Saxon is to, to, to up the kind of class warfare, like yeah. here are these conquering French people, these Frenchies that are coming in and, <laughs> and beating down on, on these lowly Saxons. And, and it made, uh, it helped uh, make Beckett a hero to the common man because he was one of them. And it helped uh, one of the central kind of uh, relationships of the movie, um, a, a, a Saxon- Yes, uh, monk. Monk who, uh, tries to assassinate Beckett as, as a traitor to his race. So anyway, I yes. just want to insert that there and then yeah. pass yeah. it back to you. Yeah. So, so in the play and in the movie, he's, he's a Saxon. He's, he's actually, he's actually not. Yeah. Uh, the movie's second scene, it, it, it goes from the crypt and immediately we see Henry and Thomas drinking and it's a great old timey word, quote unquote, wenching. <laughs> uh, Henry ruefully observes that, uh, um, he and uh, that, that Thomas was even better at wenching, drinking and wenching than, than he was in his youth. 
Uh, and that scene is very light. Um, the movie becomes very quickly a very moral movie, a very heavy, not in a bad way, but like forcing the viewer to deal with um, with weighty issues uh, and and um, uh, the state of, of each character's immortal soul, frankly, um, as, as we get further on. But but um, it's contrasted early on. It's 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 uh, youthful. It's, we have this youthful and humorous scene where they've spent the night with this young young farm girl in the attic and uh and um, their parents hear something in the morning and they're like wait what is that and so henry jumps out the window onto a horse and uh and thomas uh temporarily uh he kind of throws a mattress at uh, the, the the mother who's yelling at him to kind of delay her and then um he gets one final kiss from the girl who's like who who, who thinks they're they're handsome and thought it was all great fun and jumps out the window as well, and she throws down a boot to them, and they ride off into the into the sunset to end the not the sunset into the sunrise to end the scene, and they're laughing, and it was such a good time, right? Uh, so it depicts young men, quote unquote, harmlessly, right, sowing wild oats and building a friendship. Um, and this is <laughs> uh, th this this will evolve as the movie goes on, right? Because Henry becomes king then at twenty one, and shortly thereafter, names Thomas his Lord Chancellor. Um, and it's during, uh, it's, it's when Henry calls Thomas in to help him endure this tiresome meeting of the Privy Council. And at this meeting of the Privy Council, the Archbishop of Canterbury is telling Henry like, um, you're asking my clergy for taxes, then it's not your right to ask. Like you don't, you, um, you don't, you can't, like we're not gonna pay taxes. And, and, and Thomas is like, I don't like, not Thomas, Henry II, the king is like, I don't care. Um, I need money for this military campaign in France. And so he has this idea. He's like, he names Thomas his Lord Chancellor. And then um, so that he can have a reliable yes man in his privy council. And this is where the movie, um, this is kind of a, a launching point because immediately um, both offices begin to change each man in different ways in the first and second act. So um, the crown changes Henry. Henry can, becomes bored of his duties and the tedium of administration and of the loveless arranged marriage with kind of his, his shallow wife. Um, he really only wants to hunt, feast, and chase women. He becomes uh, nostalgic for the days when he didn't have responsibilities and he and Thomas could just do that. Whereas Thomas begins to take his duties to the king with increased seriousness and actually becomes a very, very subtle and effective politician we see this Christopher in a scene in France in the military, in the military campaign where, where Thomas arranges for a capture of a city without any bloodletting and sort of the, 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 the Norman nobles, right? The knights, uh, Henry's knights, it, it's kind of revealed that the only reason they want to go to war is like for like bloodshed and yeah. raping and pillaging and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and Thomas seems- And, and Thomas is wise. He, he's like, not only can we, can we save ourselves from all that, um, but like we want these cities for their wealth. And, and right. so if we plunder them, like they won't have wealth. If we kill them, you know, they won't have be able to pay taxes. Um, and, and so Thomas walks in to deliver the news of here, I've set all this up uh, in the morning. We're going to have a, have a, have a conquering procession into the, the French cathedral and the archbishop will give us the keys of the city. And, and he's done all this work to without any bloodshed purely for the benefit of the English crown and and what do we see Henry doing? He's in wife. He's a, he's in bed with he's in bed with a um, he is in wife, a French yes, peasant. Right. 
<laughs> he's in he's in bed with a French peasant, and um, and so it just really effectively highlights kind of the diverging trajectories of these best friends, these 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 soulmates who are but Kirk. Their but souls Kirk, are going in different directions. I believe even before this, or maybe it's right after, and you'll and you're getting to it. Um, we we kind of see yeah, Thomas Beckett. Scene. You're right. Um, uh. He's he's fully aware that Henry's a monster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to talk about this scene? Yeah. So the, the, so rain, they're, the they're, rainstorm. Yeah. So they're out hunting, um, and they get separated from the party. And there's a rainstorm, and they seek shelter in a peasant's home. And where um, do do we think that was the husband of of the girl or uh, or the father? Truly a sibling? No. No. I'm saying the young man who tried oh, to kill, who stabbed oh, Beckett. Yeah. I, I interpret it. Does it doesn't brother. matter anyway? Yeah. Um. Henry views Saxons. Uh, he refers to he dehumanizes them. He 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 does not call them people. He refers to them as it, as it. if they are animals, unless they are attractive young women. And so there's this long scene where he looks at at the at the, at the father of this daughter, and he's just like, man, like was was this was was it uh beautiful once because she's so beautiful how could it be like look so terrible and and so we see just how how much of a monster henry is and uh beckett in a way of protecting the girl from from him stealing her from from her home from her father and just using her as as a as a concubine essentially um he says essentially like I like her. I was hoping that I could take her and have her be mine um, with no intention of doing that. Right. right? That, that, that um, he kind of gets the King to promise her to him. And, and then when the guards come to take him, he's like, don't, don't bring her. Right. Uh, and so we, we don't need to go, you know, scene by scene. Um, but, but we do see just Henry be a monster. And uh, he, in exchange for this favor, he asks for Beckett's wife. Right. Um, like, like well, you you said you you'd give me anything, and so I want her, and so she kills herself, and uh, but basically, like we see. By the way, yeah. Peter O'Toole, the actor who played Henry, um, that was his wife at the time in mm. real life. The the one that killed herself. Yeah. Rather yeah, than yeah. rather than. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. So you're uh, saying, so we see in that scene. Oh, it, well, and, and if we're, as long as we're talking about uh, the, the real lives, um, I did see that uh, Richard Burton, these guys I don't know a lot about, um, Burton was married not once but twice to Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, right, yep. <laughs> uh, so, um, but, but anyway, so uh, we, we see in these scenes uh, both the duty and the morality of Beckett. Um, we see his humanity. Um, and we see his his um, his his cleverness in yeah. in essentially saving the life of this of this a young Saxon woman and knowing how to play Henry. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and Henry in all of these scenes where we see divergent uh, moral visions between the two as the as the chasm widens between Henry and Beckett, Henry. Uh, in great anguish at times articulates, it only makes him want Beckett more mm. because Be Beckett has kind of a, 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 um, a Christian soul um, that, that, that is life-giving, <laughs> right? And which is what, which is actually what Henry wants and which is chasing, a the, the chasing of pleasure hasn't brought him. Yeah, um, yeah. Henry, Thomas's friendship is life-giving because of his Christian humanity not the fact that they go drinking and wenching together. 
Yeah. But, 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 but Henry can never quite put that together. Mm. But yeah, Christopher, thank you for pointing out that, that rainstorm where they're stuck in that, that peasant's hovel. Um, that, that's important in showing kind of the, the, the divergent evolutions of each character. Yeah. So, so things come to a head when, um, uh, there's a there's a conflict with the elderly Archbishop of Canterbury, and I alluded to that. Um, he opposed the taxation of church property to support Henry's military campaigns in France, and so so they're in France, and uh, Henry receives word that the Archbishop has quote unquote gone to God's bosom, as the letter reads, um, and Henry thinks it's great um, because that man was a thorn in his side. And in a burst of inspiration, he says, he says, Henry, I, he says something, or he says, Thomas, I feel like this night with that French, French maid has given me French cleverness and French subtlety. Do you remember that? I have a real actual genius idea for once in my life. I know what I'm going to do in choosing the next archbishop. I'm going to choose my own man. And, and Thomas is like, well, but the office changes. I mean, the office will bring its own responsibilities and you'll think you'll be able to have that man. But, um, but, but, but I don't know that, that you can rely. And Henry's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I know just the man and I can trust that he will always have my interests at heart. And Thomas is like, okay, I'll bite. Who, who is it? And Henry's like, it's you, it's you. So Henry and and here's why it could happen. We we see this earlier in the movie. Uh, Thomas had actually been made an archdeacon, and uh, in real life, uh, uh, Henry uh, Thomas's father, Thomas Becket's father, um, had kind of pulled some strings to to make Thomas um, an apprentice in the cathedral. And Thomas's uh, work ethic and cleverness had um, had put him in good odor with with the office of the archbishop and he kind of worked his way up there and and so was made archdeacon so so he actually had been made archdeacon and so thomas is like well this is easy then we'll ordain you priest and then the next day we'll consecrate you archbishop of canterbury um which is the primate of all of the church of england that's so like essentially a mini pope to be to use a crude phrase right and here christopher we have we begin begins a surprising conversion of the heart because one of Thomas's first acts as Archbishop of Canterbury. Well, but, movie, but did, I'm sorry. Did you mention already? Um, just Beckett just being like, "Don't do this." Yes, Don't yes. Do this. <laughs> like, yeah, this he's is... he's a bit less enthusiastic because again, he's well, because he's how... a man of duty, and he's like, yeah. you can't take this on lightly. Like, <laughs> yeah. And he knows this about himself. Yeah. Once you know? once he wore the Chancellor's ring, he faithfully played the Chancellor's part. Right. He he kind of yeah. gave up. You know drinking and wenching so that he could be a good chancellor. And he kind of knows about himself. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to have to be a good archbishop. Um, but more, even more than that, Christopher, even more than faithful to the office. And I think this next scene is vital in showing this. It's not just faithfully administering the duties of the office. Um, he begins to have a surprising conversion of the heart. Uh, one of his first acts is to sell, he sells his personal possessions that he had acquired as the chancellor, which was a wealthy position and uses the proceeds to buy clothing for the poor. And this is a moving scene, Christopher. We see him at, at some, some room in the cathedral. We see him, we have a bunch of homeless men kind of lined up sitting down. And we see the archbishop, Thomas, we see him kneeling 
um, trying different size shoes on homeless men and giving away jackets um, in the cathedral. Uh, and um, and uh, the, uh, from the beginning, the, the Bishop of London, which is a very powerful position in the Church of England, you might even say number three after the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London from the beginning suspects, um, he's a more cynical worldly man. He suspects, Tom, what, what is Thomas's ulterior motive? What, 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 what's going on? He never trusts him. And he says, why are you doing this? You just want to kind of look good to the, to the peasants, to the Saxon folk, look like the common man, be the hero of the common man. And um, he really unironically, not snarkily, Thomas quotes <laughs> Jesus. He quotes from Luke I chapter love 18. It. I love it. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And <laughs> go ahead. Well, just in, in the real life of, of Thomas Beckett as chancellor, uh, as I was reading about that, uh, he lived really a more lavish life than the mm -hmm. king himself. Like, he, you know, he entertained, like his court um, was was um, the, the, the most... Uh, spendthrift and, and like it, it was the most lavish court in all in the whole world in all likelihood um, or at least a, a top one and to, to go from that to um, obeying the words of Jesus to yeah. um, clothe <laughs> the poor and feed the poor and give yeah. you know give away all you have yeah. G.K. Chesterton G.K. Chesterton had a had a quote and I, I should find it um, marveling at um, the fact that Thomas Beckett wore two things he wore a hair shirt and the gold vestments of the church, <laughs> right? So aside from wearing the vestments do his office as Archbishop of Canterbury was like a monk, like an no. ascetic monk. Um, yeah, so, so he, says, he says later on in, in a scene, he says, um, dear Lord, he prays. There's, there are two moving prayers he has. And I, I, I took time, Christopher, to make sure I have them verbatim. He says, dear Lord, I wish there was something I really regretted parting with so that I might offer it to you. But forgive me, Lord, it's like going on holiday. I've never enjoyed myself so much in my whole life. So a real conversion of the heart, right? He is embracing apostolic poverty and finding it life-giving. <laughs> not like, not deprivation, but it's given him life. So, so you mentioned there's this, there's this subplot, interesting subplot, where there's, in France, there is this uh, um, Saxon, monk that was sent to kill him and uh and and, and thomas um kind of is able to, to to grab his hand before the knife plunges into thomas and he asks thomas kind of forgives him and says i, I want this man to be kind of send him back to the abbey and then thomas later sends for him and he's his, sort of his personal secretary and and this monk his name is john he suspects thomas he's like I don't, he, he just suspects him until um, he overhears him praying in his private chapel. And Christopher, this is the prayer that he prays. Mm. My Lord, I find it difficult to talk to you. What can I say? I who have turned away from you so often with indifference. I have been a stranger to prayer, undeserving of your friendship and love. I've been without honor and feel unworthy. I am a weak and shallow creature clever only in the second rate and worldly arts, seeking my comfort and pleasure. I gave my love such as it was elsewhere, putting service to my earthly king before my duty to you. Please, Lord, 
teach me how to serve you with all my heart to know at last what it really is to love, to adore, so that I may worthily administer your kingdom here on earth and find my true honor in observing your divine will. Please, Lord, make me worthy. And John, this, this Saxon monk in tears, drops to his knees and embraces him and says, I didn't know, I didn't know. Meaning like, I didn't know you're the real thing, that you really do. You're all in, you love God and want to serve um, the people and the church. And, um, and so that's a moving scene. Um, so shortly thereafter, Beckett sides with the church, which throws Henry into a fury. One of the main bones of contention is Thomas, Christopher, this is a great scene. We can talk about this later if you want. He excommunicates Lord Gilbert, one of Henry's most loyal um, knights, for seizing and ordering the killing of a priest who had been accused of sexual indiscretions with a young girl before the priest can be handed over to ecclesiastical trial. So at the time, um, all clergy um, had their own court system, uh, ecclesiastical court. Yeah, Kirk, and can, I just want to speak a little bit about this because that that is that is the crux of of the division between yep. um, Henry and Thomas Beckett. Uh, it, it is it is the rivalry of church and state. So obviously, Henry has has his own ambitions. He wants to do what he, what he wants, but the reason he appoints him is, is he's frustrated with um, the, the fact that, that he cannot control the church. And there, there are many, many issues here. One of them is, is just taxation, but um, cricket was a real problem that, uh, that any cleric, which uh, sometimes referred to as just clerks and anyone um, ordained in the church uh, was not subject to uh, civil trial. Yeah. Civil trial. Yeah. So if, if they committed a crime, they were uh, oftentimes under, like justice was not served. Right. The, the church uh, treated, you know, they're like, well, they're our own and we don't have to punish them. It was a real problem, Kirk. There, there, um, there were over a hundred murders um, by clerics. Uh, I don't remember the, the time period, if this was in one year or over a period of years, um, when, when Beckett was, was in charge. And, um, so essentially like if, if, and, and the mark of, of a, of a clerk or a cleric, um, would be the tonsure. So some people would even commit crimes, shave that, <laughs> like shave a little bit of their head so that right. they would not be subject to, to laws. And, and so it, it, it was a real problem, but Beckett was fighting the fact that like, if, if you give a mouse a cookie, <laughs> right. If, if you give uh, the the king a little bit of power over the church, he's going to take it all, and and so so perhaps the the best thing to do is to reform the way the church polices its own, rather than to give king full control over over the church. Yeah, and uh, we can get into this later. But the ir the irony, the sad irony is, I don't know, is it sad? The irony is, um, Thomas Beckett, who today is much beloved and his shrine is much visited, um, fought that battle. And then 500 years later, um, the English church declares the king as the head of the English church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, so, I mean, it's, it's so the, the king has several things to worry about, like, which is why he wanted his buddy to be Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he has to worry about the church, but he also like has to worry about his barons. Um, right. And so he's got to keep everybody kind of content. And it's a difficult thing, both church and state, but also king and barons. And also these like, these 
kind of subclass of, of Saxons. And so it's no surprise that uh, just a few kings later with John, um, you know, just a few decades later um, that we see the Magna Carta signed as like some rights for, for the people. So, yeah. Yep. Um, and this actually isn't historical, but it's used by the screenwriter to throw Henry and Beckett into this conflict. And it's very effective. You're saying, Gil- you're saying Gilbert. Gilbert. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yep, yeah. yep this yep. is not a real thing, but like yep. things like this did happen. And, and so this, this in the movie was the event. That- so Henry is done with Beckett. And so he charges him on trumped up charges of extortion. And it's like a laugh out loud sum of money. Um, Beckett shows up to the, to hear the charges, goes to London from Canterbury to London to to be, have the charges presented. And in this very powerful moment um, tells the man, the knight who reads the charges uh, from the, from the, the kind of the Royal seal from the Royal document, like, stop talking right now or your immortal soul is in peril you know you're talking rot you know these are trumped up charges you know this is complete garbage <laughs> and do not look me <laughs> right the, the the father of your soul into the into the eye will you read in my eye will you read these charges if you don't want your immortal soul cast <laughs> into deep danger it's a really powerful kind of moment of spiritual authority right like christians do not speak lies do not lie to me <laughs> and he can't say it. And um, it's a great Henry is watching like through a side curtain. He's not present in the room. And he like, he laugh cries um, to his mother-in-law, like I'm surrounded by fools. Thomas is the only smart one in this room. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great scene. So, but Beckett has to go into exile in France, right? He's no longer safe in England now that he's been charged with this. And he spends his exile in a monastery where you see him living the simple uh, working life of a monk. Uh, in response to this uh, lifestyle, Beckett kind of muses to himself, quote, is it, too, is it too easy a way, perhaps even a luxury? The path to holiness in this monastery is too effortless. Like hinting that like his path to, to, to God, to life with God, it's not going to be this easy. Just like tending cattle in a monastery and praying and working. No, he's got a harder, a harder road ahead before he sees glory, right? So it's this great kind of prophetic thing. Um, uh, the king has a dramatic secret meeting with the Bishop of London in his cathedral. Like these are two cynical worldly men and they lay out a plan to remove, um, remove uh, uh, Henry. Um, let's see, let's, let's skip ahead. So Beckett goes to Rome to appeal to the Pope, uh, which is hilarious, um, all, all the uh, Italian... <laughs> like the thick um, fake Italian accents of the cardinals and stereotypes. It's really like mid 20th century. You can kind of just kind of do Mediterranean stereotypes and get away with it. Um, it's kind of funny. And uh, the Pope reminds Beckett that he has an obligation to return to England and take a stand against Henry's interference in church matters. Um, so Beckett yields to this and asks King Louis of France to arrange a meeting with Henry on the beaches of Normandy. And this too is a powerful scene, Christopher. Um, they meet on a cold windswept beach, just two, two men on, on horses on this cold beach in northern France. And Henry asked Beckett whether or not he ever loved him. And Beckett re- replied that he loved Henry to the best of his ability. Um, there's a shaky truce and Beckett is allowed to return to England. Um, but he knows he's going to die. 
Um, the remainder of the film shows Henry rapidly sinking into drunken fixation over Beckett and Beckett's supposed betrayal. Um, the barons worsen Henry's mood by pointing out that Beckett has, has become a folk hero. Beckett's more popular than Henry is. Um, and uh, I, I, there's a comical fight between Henry and Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, who is not in real life as dimwitted as she is made on, in, on the screen here, but it's funny. Uh, the mother-in-law is really funny too. She like just scorns Henry. She just hates Henry. Um, and then there's this famous line, right? Christopher, um, uh, when he's partying with his, uh, with his barons, what does he say in frustration? I, I don't remember. Oh, I'm sorry. Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Or who will oh. rid me of this meddlesome priest? I, so, so, so that's the classic line. I think it's 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 uh, I think it's delivered differently in the movie, isn't it? Is it? Will no one rid me of this medal? Uh, Maybe it is because I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it, and then it was said like <laughs> not, almost not as a question. I think it was almost a statement. In the movie. Right, right. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't realize you were setting me up for that. Yeah, and so on December 29th, uh, what's the year? 1170, 1171, 1179. I should know this. Um. Uh, those those knights who are there, they set out and um, they proceed to Canterbury where they put uh, Thomas and his Saxon deputy brother, John, um, as they're walking into Vespers, um, they put them to the sword. Uh, it, the movie makes, makes it out that Henry, uh, not Henry, that Thomas Beckett knew that he was going to be, uh, there was something in the wind that this was coming. And he's asked, do you want us to lock the door? And he's like, lock the door before Vespers, <laughs> like before evening worship? No, like we're the church, like whoever may come, may come. And before he even makes it in, like as he's processing in on, what is it, the, um, the, the South transept, um, he's, he's, he's slaughtered there. Um, and so uh, the movie ends, it flashes back to the present where Henry's then um, at the tomb of Beckett and, um, he, uh, he, one of the things he had agreed to, to undergo was whipping uh, by monks as penance. And so um, it's also, it's such a great piece of acting, Christopher. Um, you see him almost like enjoying it. Like he, he wanted like, like physical, it's why people cut themselves, right? Physical pain is at least pain you can control. And whereas emotional pain is just endless torment, right? So there's almost a satisfaction as he's on his face as he's being whipped. Uh, and he informs his barons that uh, the, the one who killed Beckett will be found and justly punished, which is total baloney, right? It's, I think it's perfunctory. And then he publicly proclaims to the crowd outside the church um, that Thomas Beckett will be canonized as a saint. Christopher, thoughts? Well, uh, I, initially, I, I just want to add add um, this church state thing that um, we discussed beforehand uh, before we hit record. Just the the, the obvious end. So so he was this folk hero in that like he loved the poor. He um, very much represented the poor and the marginalized, and um, and re represented the church in terms of church versus state. And so it's no surprise that that Henry VIII um, desecrated his, his shrine and that, that he spread, you know, emptied it out, scattered his bones, and 
Um, but but yeah, it became this play, great pilgrimage site because um, I mean, obviously you have uh, he, he's certainly the righteous figure here. And so, uh, thoughts on what Kirk? Uh, the power of the movie, the power of 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 do, honor and duty, um, uh, uh, the, the the humility of of uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, exemplified in Thomas Beckett. All what? of those are great themes. <laughs> Be- begin wherever you wish. Uh, or, or, or do we do we want to talk about just the movie and, and how we have two of the greatest actors of their generation um, doing a lot of acting and sometimes more acting isn't better, but certainly in, a, in an epic, a two and a half hour movie with a an intermission uh, that that has uh, that's this based on a play. So we have. Uh, the actors, uh, especially Peter O'Toole playing Henry II, do many monologues. So it's not mm-hmm. like uh, it's not like a movie. It's it's like you can see that it's a play. That that sometimes they talk as people do not talk. You know where he just will kind of go on this extended um, monologue. And uh, but 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 all of that is great, I think. And and it and even though it's not fully accurate. Um, uh, it, it, it is accurate in, in the bigger themes of, of church versus state, of duty, um, and, and, and it's interesting. Even in the Vatican, uh, when they go to the Vatican, there is a a cynicism with which they make their decisions, both the Pope and, and uh, who's his right-hand man? I forget. But uh, like, you know, one of his cardinals, one of the Pope's cardinals, like there is a cynicism and, and they kind of assume that Beckett is 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 politicking and being cynical and 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 essentially uh, working at something greater here. And then when they actually have their audience, when Beckett has his audience with the, with the Pope, the Pope realizes this guy is authentic and as authentic as they come. Yeah, that, 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 that is that a great scene. scene. Yes, yeah. yes. Um. I mean, it, that's further evidence of his conversion. Like we see uh, the kind of the beginning, a young man who enjoys, you know, wine, women, and song, and he just becomes very earnest. And I, um, as I was watching this, I, I, Kim watched the second half with me and I like elbowed her. I'm like, I always identify with the earnest character. I feel like I've been mm. growing in kind of earnestness as, as I age. And so I, I really identified with Thomas feeling, feeling the full weight of, um, the Christian moral vision and um, the mm. task that he had taken on. Um, and it's very powerfully conveyed in that scene as well. As the, um, it's interesting, the Pope, uh, the way he's acted out um, in that scene, it both threads the needle as like comedic, um, like uh, Italian buffoon in, in a thick, you know, Italian Mediterranean accent. And, and also like subtle politician who wants the best for the church and the flock. I mean, that's partly why he encourages him to do the hard thing and go back, go, you got to go back, got to defend, got to defend the church. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how, how winsome Beckett is personally in the, in the movie. Uh, he wins over the King of France and he's yes. like, I kind of like him, but also I'm glad that he's not here. Cause he'd be a thorn on my side as well. Yep. <laughs> um, as, as the King of France kind of shelters him for a time. Uh, yeah. Kirk, this is, it's, it's, um, I mean, there's certainly a parallel we can draw between uh, King Henry II and and Solomon, King Solomon, um, in that mm. like both are are given all the luxuries of life, um, and find them all to be meaningless. Yeah, yeah. And and so so uh, although Henry isn't willing to to kind of reform and and 
and um, choose the the lowly path and choose Jesus. Um, like he realizes the emptiness of 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 all the women and all the wealth and all all of that um, that ultimately has not made him happy. So why does this matter? Other than being just a really compelling story, mm. well, Beckett's murder made Canterbury Cathedral the focus of the most popular pilgrimage in England. And if in high school or college you had to read any portion of uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the whole um, the whole purpose for that there that pilgrimage is to go and visit um, Beckett's shrine in that northwest transept. Um, and he lay in the crypt there until 1220, at which point he was, um, a, a special shrine was erected in St. Thomas Chapel, which now is now Trinity Chapel. Like you said, um, that, uh, that shrine was destroyed in 1538 by Henry VIII. Um, but yet um, the space, it's the empty space is still adorned mm -hmm. with um, marble columns in rose pink and white, which are the colors of martyrdom. Um, and there's a, there's a stark spare candle on the floor um, that flickers um, on the spot where he was, and and there's a um, there's a there's a rusty sword um, above on the wall uh, as well. Um, uh, some number, let's see, eight of the original twelve windows celebrating the life and miracles of the martyr um, are still there in that transept as well. Christopher and you and I visited there, and I, I I think the starkness of the shrine or the absence of a shrine basically. Um, deprived it of its power at the time. And so I, I, I was too young to fully appreciate um, where I was and, and, and what it meant. Um, but it's remarkable that post-Reformation as reformed Protestant Christians, um, there are a handful of English cathedrals that have shrines that to this day are enormously popular. Um, and yet they're very Protestant shrines, right? Um, I've been to Catholic shrines in Europe um, where you can look at the skull and it's jewel encrusted and there are emeralds in the eye sockets. And so it's interesting, our English saints are not like that. It's far, it, there, there's more, much more Protestant austerity. And so you can tell that it's, um, you can feel that it's a space bathed in prayer, soaked in prayer, but yet there's not a jewel encrusted bone in the glass case to stare at as if that would bring any spiritual insight or um, any, 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 um, any spiritual congress with the departed saint, um, but rather I think we marvel at uh, the fearlessness and the faithfulness of those who have come before. Uh, Christopher, you and I were also at St. Cuthbert's Shrine in Durham. Um, St. Oswald's head is, is in Durham. It was transferred there from, I think, either Peter, Peterborough or Lincoln Cathedral. Um, St. Chad's Shrine um, is in, uh, is in uh, Litchfield Cathedral. And um, all of these are, are early saints of the English church that you can read about. Venerable Bede's body is in Durham Cathedral as well. And these are all uh, popular places that are, that are well visited. Um, and to our very reformed um, non-Anglican Protestant listeners, this may strike you as irreconcilable. Um, and it is interesting, but, but they exist and they're popular sites of pilgrimage. And um, I have daydreamed and I'm, I'm gonna make it happen at some point, I wanna walk. Um, uh, the, uh, what's it called? The Saints Way. I'm going to walk, I'm going to do the Beckett pil pilgrimage at some point from, I think it's Salisbury to Kent. And um, it'll be lovely. It's something I look forward to. Um, you, you dealt with the church versus state themes, and I know we're going comically long. 
Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, those are those are kind of the themes I wanted to wanted to deal with, Christopher. Do you have any final thoughts before we pray? Uh, just um, it. I understand old movies are not for everybody. Um, the pacing and and uh, so I mean, in essence, like this movie is a very simple story that's drawn out over two and a half hours because it's painting a broad picture, and that's the way things were. Um, it, it's paced differently than than contemporary movies. So I, I usually when I give a recommendation, I you know, sometimes I'll say that everyone should watch this. I don't know that everyone will enjoy this, but um, certainly the story is powerful. Um, and so if you haven't read further on on Henry II and Beckett, um, it, it would be worth reading. Um, and uh, if you have the patience for this movie, watch it. I, I would actually say um, this, it's it's actually PG-13. You may, uh, I wouldn't watch it with like your 10 year old. Um, they're just a lot, uh, it deals with, uh, Henry's openly with Henry's uh, sexual indiscretions a lot early on, um, and this kind of for, forces you to kind of it's, it, that that stuff is on screen, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. in, I don't know in a 1964 movie that deals with weighty theological concepts, but but don't be surprised if you see like a barely barely clothed French barmaid like in bed with Henry <laughs> early on in the second act. Yeah, shall we close in prayer? Let's, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. O Lord, from whom all good proceeds, grant us the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may always think those things that are good, and by your merciful guidance may accomplish the same. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, Jesus, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week. Next week.